Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to another edition of Teaching the Torah. And on this Sabbath, it is the Torah portion called Haya Sarah, the life of Sarah. It begins in Genesis 23, and it's kind of the final conclusion of what we're going to hear about Abraham, because he'll be burying his wife Sarah. And then it leads into the story of how um, Isaac got his wife, Rebecca. So with that as an introduction, let's dive right in and let's see what the Torah portion has for us this Sabbath. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 23, Now Sarah lived 127 years, and these are the years of the life of Sarah, the life of Sarah, Haya Sarah. For it, there is a very interesting eulogy that comes out of this verse, and it goes at 127 years. Here's how it's said. At the, at the age of 100, she had the beauty of a 20-year-old and the sin of a 7-year-old. And this is the eulogy that's given for Sarah, uh, the wife of Abraham, that she remained beautiful in, even into her age and remained innocent before the Lord and uh, honorable and pure before the Lord uh, was the characteristics of her life. That's her eulogy. Now it goes on to say, And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. There's a couple of things we need to mention. If you remember from the previous week's portion, this is the a key to the binding of Isaac. This is where Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him to the Lord, give him to the Lord. As we all know, uh, the Lord didn't uh, stop Abraham, that Isaac wasn't sacrificed. However, there is a traditional teaching that says that after Abraham and Isaac left, that someone came and told Sarah that this was what was happening. And the stress of that was too great and actually brought about her death. Uh, for it, so that when Abraham returned with Isaac, suddenly he was faced with the death of his wife, Isaac with the death of his mother. And where it says that he went in to mourn for her, in the Hebrew, if you have a Sefer Torah scroll, you'll find that the scribes take the letter Kof there and they make that very small. Well, Kof has to do with the head. And, and so by making it small, it's like the, the lowering of the head. And so there's a picture of the lowering of the head, of how deep the mourning was for the loss of Sarah. It goes on to say, verse 3, Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves, and none of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham arose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke to them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, Hear me, and approach Ephraim, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. So first of all, we need to cover a couple of things here. This is a very detailed conversation. It's a very specific conversation, and it goes to the very issue as to who owns Machpelah and who owns it. And the Bible records in detail this negotiation and this agreement. Now, when it says, speak to um, uh, Ephraim, of, uh, the son of Zohar, for me, believe me, he went into this council, and Ephraim of Zohar is sitting in the room. He could have easily gone to him personally, but he wanted witnesses. Abraham wanted witnesses to know about this transaction so that it would be backed up. It couldn't be a, he said, he said something else, and 
dispute into the future. He definitely wanted to own the property. So they had agreed that he could choose a place that was amongst them, and this seemed like the ideal place for him in Hebron uh, at that place. And so he spoke to wanting to purchase a very specific place for it. It had a field and a cave uh, that was associated with it, and he wanted to use the cave to be able to bury Sarah in there. So he's going to start this conversation open and publicly with Ephraim sitting right there. And he says to him, speak to him, I will pay him a full price for it. So at verse 10 it says this, now Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Abraham wanted a clear purchase, a clear exchange of money for the land so there'd be no disputing over the course of the land. Um, if you've ever seen someone give something freely and then try to take it back, saying, well, it was never sold, uh, that's what Abraham is trying to prevent from happening here, should there be a change of heart um, in their attitude toward him. He wanted to make sure there was a clear purchase and had witnesses to it. So, then uh, verse 14, Then Ephraim answered to Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of cereal, Lord. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. So Ephraim says, okay, you want to purchase it? It's 400 shekels of cereal. Uh, but it's put in the language as though it's very gracious, like it's, you know, that, that's meaningless. That doesn't mean anything. It may not mean anything to Ephraim the Hittite at that moment, but it means a lot to Abraham at that moment. And so he makes the purchase. That's the price, and he makes the purchase. Let me, um, at this point, do a couple of things. One, this is a, used to be a very controversial passage of Scripture here because it specifically mentions the Hittite people. And many archaeologists for many years um, went around saying that there was no people called the Hittites and they used that because there was no archaeological evidence of them. And they used to use that as an argument to say, see, the Bible is full of fables. You know, they claims there was these people and, and there's no evidence of those peoples. So how can that poss be possible? Well, it's in this generation that they finally found archaeological evidence that supports there was a Hittite people in a Hittite kingdom. And the evidence indicates that the Egyptians used to fight them on a pretty regular basis. And they're even known for uh, their particular weapon, choice weapon of war was a three-man chariot as opposed to a two-man chariot that was used by the Egyptians. So this is another one of those examples where people will take what I refer to as kind of a cheap shot at the Bible only to have the evidence come in supporting what the Bible has to say uh, that it says is the truth. So that's one item that comes out of this passage uh, that we just mentioned that further substantiates the Bible. The Bible is the oldest known ev written evidence that says there was a Hittite kingdom. And for a while they never thought there was one, um, but uh, this story says there was such a people and there was such a land uh, for it. And then it proceeds to say, um, that, um, let me bow here for a second. Um, well, the purchase price of the 400 uh, shekels of, for this, this burial site now becomes a very, very important place to Abraham and to his descendants. As we will find later on in the scripture, this is going to be the same burial site where Abraham will be buried. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried there. And Jacob and, and his wife will be buried there, not Rachel, 
but, uh, but uh, his other wife, Leah. And to this day, there is this Machpelah in Hebrew, in Hebron, that you can go to, and it's the burial place of the fathers. Now, it's a controversial place because the Palestinians want to control it, but they do allow the Jews in one area of it to come and so forth, and it's a delicate balance there because the Muslims are there to, uh, to um, pray at Abraham's grave. Uh, the Jews are there to pray at all of the fathers and all of the mothers' graves uh, that are at that place. That The original beginnings of that place is from Abraham's purchase. The other one I want to mention, too, is this is the first of three specific places uh, in the Holy Land where the Bible speaks of uh, Israel or the descendants of Israel purchasing land. This is the first one. Abraham purchased this particular land. Uh, we have another one when um, it will come back when the children of Israel will return to the land. They will buy specifically the land at Shechem for the burial place of Joseph, for Joseph's tomb. And then finally, when King David he will buy the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, which is where the Temple Mount is located in Jerusalem. Those three places the Bible gives the, as the deed of when they were purchased and what was the price that was paid for them. Uh, to this day, those three places are disputed uh, by the Palestinians and by other people in the world opposed to Israel against it, when in fact uh, the Bible serves as a deed of those three places uh, throughout all of history for it. Um, so he purchases that land, and he ha that's where he's going to be burying uh, Sarah for it. He continues to uh, be filled with mourning and sadness for it. And so it says, verse 17, So Ephraim's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced uh, Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of the border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went into the gate of this city. And after this, Abraham buried his, Sarah, his wife, in the cave at the field of Machpelah facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over in Abraham for his burial site for the, by the sons of Heth. You notice how it emphatically repeats that statement? That Moses wanted to make sure that we had an accurate record and that there would be no question ever into the future whose land is it, who purchased it. Now, this particular field that's mentioned here is going to play a very important future role um, that we'll hear in the story about Isaac, and I'll save that until we get there. But take note of the description that's given here of the trees and the field and the cave and so forth um, and, and into that future discussion. All right, chapter 24. <clears throat> now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. He's having a conversation with Eliezer, his servant, who is like uh, the house manager, so to speak, uh, that he took care of the affairs for Abraham. So he's going to dispatch him with a task to complete for Abraham, and he's going to send him on a trip uh, to go find a wife for Isaac. And at this point, Isaac is a grown man. We believe that he was at 40 years of age at this point, and he had suffered the loss of his mother. So Abraham felt that it was necessary that he have a wife to establish his house as well. So he, he comes and brings Eliezer in, and he says, I want you to make this agreement with me. And it says here this very unusual custom, and he says, please place your hand under my thigh. In the actual Hebrew, for the word thigh, we have a little struggle with the translation there. Uh, this is the preferred translation uh, that has to do with modesty 
and it has to do with we don't want to say anything in the Bible that might be offensive to someone, but the reality is that we actually believe that the proper word there would be that he was asked to place his hand under his genitals, under his uh, testicles. And the reason is, is because that would have been an indication that if you failed to do what I've asked you to do, then may my seed, my offspring, come and deal with you if I can't deal with you. It's a very powerful way of making a vow and a statement, and it was something that was a part of the ancient times. I don't know of anybody making procedures like that or agreements like that nowadays. At least I've never heard of one being done that way. But this is a very powerful passage here in which that Abraham is going to enlist the help of his servant Eliezer and to make him swear to it. So here's essentially what was done. Verse 3, And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of the heavens and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go into my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Should I take your son back in the land from where you came? And Abraham said to him, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. So let's elaborate on that for a moment. We remember that when the story of Abraham began, that God called him out of his father's house, and he said, I will take you to a land that I will give you. We hear the story of Abraham gets up, he goes there, he sees the land. And he gets also the promise, this land is for you, Abraham, and for your descendants. Well, here's Isaac, this promised descendant that he's received, and he knows this land is for him. So when Eliezer suggests, well, do I take him back and advertise him for a future wife? He's saying, no, don't do that. He must stay here in the land. He must stay in the land here. This is the God's promise for it. I need you to go and to get a wife for him. And then he says this very interesting thing to Eliezer. He will send his angel before you. Um, this isn't just any angel. This is, he's saying it, the angel of the Lord will go before you, the messenger of the Lord. We believe this is one of the manifestations of how the Messiah escorted Eliezer to go find the bride for, um, for Isaac and to select his wives for him according to God's plan. A very powerful thing here. And by the way, Eliezer was encouraged by that and took, took courage in the fact that God was assisting him in this task. And you'll hear more of that as we get into the story. Verse 8, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. All I'm asking you to do is go and follow what the angel of the Lord shows you and how he'll lead you, and it will be fine. Now, if she's not willing to come after all that takes place, you're free from the oath. You may return Eliezer. So that, again, takes the pressure off of him to be able to complete the task and fulfill the oath. Verse 9, so the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of goods in his master in his hand, and he rose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Nahor is where Abraham's family was from. That was the area that he had originated from before he'd come to the Promised Land, in, in the land of Mesopotamia, which is the early regions of what we now consider to be um, um, Iraq and part of Iran and Assyria. All of those areas in there, in and around the Euphrates River and so forth, was referred to as Mesopotamia. 
Uh, so he dispatches him. That's quite a bit of a journey going back. And it, but he emphatically tells us in verse 10 that he took 10 camels. Why not 12 camels? Why not 8 camels? Well, some have said, well, he figured out the journey and how long it was that he was, felt he was going to need 10 camels. Well, he could have taken a lot more camels or he could have taken less, but he decided on the 10 camels and with all the goods he was going to be carrying and for the transportation there and the transportation back. That's the 10 camels he took. Here's the fascinating part of this. This number 10 shows up here and a number of other places in Scripture. And let me just tell you that each of the main numbers uh, carries a great theme throughout the Bible. Let me just for a moment as a sidebar share a little bit of this with you. The number one, for example, is always about God. Uh, the number two has to do with your relationship between God and men. And the number two will show up in all of those kinds of discussions. The number three has to do with the fathers and with covenants, God's covenants. You'll see this number three kick up all the time. The number four seems to speak always to the Messiah or the future Messiah. The number five deals with faith and grace um, and um, those kinds of mercy, those kinds of attributes. The number six is about man. The number seven is about the plan of God. Eight is about new beginnings. Nine is about judgment. And ten has to do with the concept of having confidence before God. In many instances where we see the number 10 come up, it has to do with having or not having confidence in God. If you remember, 10 commandments were given. If you will obey all 10 commandments, you will be confident before the Lord that you're walking before Him appropriately. If you remember the spies that they sent into the land, 10 of them gave a bad report. They lacked confidence in God to go into the land. And that, so again, it's about that theme that ties into it. The number of 10 that had to do with the number of righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, if you have 10, then you can have confidence in God that he'll not judge the city. And it just kind of goes throughout the scripture like that. And so we believe the number 10, and the reason why it's pointed out here, is Eliezer was putting his confidence in the Lord for the task that was before him. He had sworn to his master Abraham that he would go and do these things, but he wasn't putting his confidence in his strength. He was putting his confidence in God, and Abraham had said, the angel of the Lord will go before you, so I'm putting my confidence in him to lead me accordingly. When we see the prayers of Eliezer, that's exactly what we're going to hear him saying. I'm trusting you, Lord. Show me how this is supposed to work. All right. So with that said, he proceeds to go on this journey. Verse 11, and he made the camels. Um, let me go back to uh, verse 10. Then the servant took 10 camels of the camels of the master, set out for a variety of goods for his master. He arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Now, this was smart on his part. If you want to see the women of the city, then you're going to go to where the women come and draw the water. By the way, this was one of the standard duties in the ancients for women. Women were the ones who would go and collect the water for the household. And if there was a well, then they would have their jars and they would go and collect them. And maybe you've seen the scene of the lady balancing a jar on her head or, you know, up in her carrying it up like so. That was a very common thing, custom of the day. And so if you wanted to see the women of the city, just go to where in the evening time where the water's at because they'll be coming to get water uh, for their household and their family. And so sure enough... Rebecca is going to come out there from her house and to draw water, and he's going to get a chance to see them as they come. Verse 12, and he said, O Lord, the God of, of my master Abraham, 
Please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom thou hast appointed for my servant Isaac, and by this I shall know that thou hast showed loving kindness to my master. That's a very interesting kind of proposition. Okay, Lord, uh, they're all going to come out. I'll ask them one at a time, can I have some water of the water you draw? And if that young lady then turns around and says, oh, I see you have camels, surely they need water as well. I'll draw for them and I'll be hospitable to them as well. So he's going to find out the characteristics of these women. How selfish are they? How helpful are they? And so he lays before the Lord and he says, for the benefit of my master and for me, Lord, would you show me the right woman, the one who is loving and kind and careful that would be an excellent wife for uh, my, my master's son, Isaac. So that's the stage is now set uh, for her to come out. And so guess what's going to happen? Rebecca is going to come out and we're going to see uh, how this um, all passes before him. So they sees it. And verse 15, And it came about before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebecca was who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her uh, jar on her shoulder, and the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord, and she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. And so he quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew out for all the camels. By the way, camels drink a lot more water than a man does. So this task of her drawing from a jar to to water the camels could well have been a jar full for every camel, maybe even more. So rather than just pour drawing water one time and sharing with Eliezer, she's going to draw multiple times, maybe as many as ten times that goes hand in hand with his ten camels. Thus some of the wisdom about why didn't he take twelve camels or fifteen camels when He's going to use this as the measurement tool to show him what is God's will for the choice for Isaac. The, um, so besides the fact that she's demonstrating that she's a very helpful uh, person, the Scripture specifically describes her in verse 16 as very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. Now, the term a virgin no man had had relations with her presents a very interesting thing for us and something we have to clarify about biblical definitions. When you called a woman a virgin, it didn't mean the same as she had had no relations with a man. When it specifically said she'd had no relations with a man, that is what we typically in our culture in our day refer to as a virgin. But the term virgin in the biblical definition, means that she's a woman of God, that she's a woman with virtues and purity. She could easily be married, uh, and she would still be a virgin from the standpoint of being a biblical woman. Um, And uh, so it has to do with her being a woman of virtue or a woman of God is the description. And then it goes on to say, no, she's never been married before, never had into a relationship with a man before uh, from that. Uh, and so uh, Betiel, which by the way is another meaning of it, means man of God, and here she is a woman of God. And so this is Abraham's family. These are people who believe in the God of creation, and so this is the, the right pool of people that 
Eliezer's been dispatched to to find a bride for Isaac uh, for that. So they water the camels, and, uh, and this has been completed. Uh, verse 21, Meanwhile, Eliezer was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Then it came about, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel and the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. So now she's extending hospitality to Eliezer to be able to come with his equipment, with his camels, to be able to be uh, cared for for the evening. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He's now seeing this is the one you have chosen, and you're going to make my trip successful, Lord, as I had prayed. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. And the girl ran and told his mother's household about these things. So, Here's, uh, if you will, the circumstances were set up to be able to show to Eliezer what the Lord was going to be doing. Those things happen. He recounts that to um, Rebecca. Rebecca runs off to her house to say, you won't believe what happened. I met this man. This is what the Lord is doing. And, and here we are. Now, Rebecca uh, had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran outside uh, to the man at the spring. And he came about when he saw the ring and the bracelets for his sister's wrist. And when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. He went out to the man. Behold, he was standing on the camels at the spring. So he meets him out there to welcome him in. But you got to ask yourself, what really was Laban's motivation? And the scripture gives us a clue to that. His real motivation was for gain. And later on, um, when Jacob has to work for Laban, his uncle at that point, you will find out Laban is all about gain. Laban's name means white, a lavan, which means white. Uh, and later on, when Jacob is there, uh, he will keep the white sheep, but he'll give the speckled and black sheep and so forth to Jacob. He'll keep the white ones, like his name says. But just because he looks white and he seems pure to it, he has deeper motivations and they are ones for gain. So, it's verse 31, and he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord, why do you... Um, stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So Laban is now selling himself like he's this magnanimous, hospitable person. Come, Eliezer, I've already prepared everything for you to get Eliezer to cooperate with him so that he might have future leverage in a discussion. Verse 32, so the man entered the house then Laban unloaded the camels. Well, thank you, Laban, for that, you know, since you're trying to gain my influence. He gave straw and feed to the camels and, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when the food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, speak on. Eliezer, before he sits down to enjoy the full hospitality that Laban's laying out, he says, wait a minute, before we go any further, I need to make sure you understand what my business is, and we need to complete that before I'm a partaker of all your hospitality. Because if I become a partaker of your hospitality, then you have the influence on me, and I need to be free of that influence to accomplish my objective. If you remember from the last week's portion about Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah, by serving hospitality and food to the Lord, that's how he gained the power to intercede on behalf of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah 
in pleading when negotiating with the Lord. This is the way it works. Intercession follows hospitality. And so Laban is trying to do the same thing. I'll be very hospitable here, eat my food. That way in any future discussion, I have the power to make requests of you and negotiate with you. It strengthens my position to negotiate. Eliezer is wise, and he says, no, 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 before we do that, I need to tell you what my purpose is and what my objective is up first. So, um, verse 34, very interesting speech is going to be given to him now by him. I am Abraham's servant. The emphasis is on his master, not on himself. And the Lord has greatly pleased, blessed my master, so that he's become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age and he has given him all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in the land whom I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife of, for my son. And I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. And he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son from my relatives, from my father's house. Then you will be free from the oath when you come to my relatives and if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to this spring and said, O Lord God, the God of my master, Abraham, if now thou wilt make my journey on the which I go successful, behold, I'm standing at the spring. May it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, please let me drink water from your jar. And she will say, you drink and I will drink your camp, draw for your aunt camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master. Before I have finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder, went down to the spring, drew. I said to her, please let me have a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder. She said, drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank and was watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And they said, the daughter Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now if you're going to deal kindly, truly with my master, tell me, and if not, let me know, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, Eliezer goes through the painstaking detail, as we read it again. What had been set up with the Lord before he had met Rebekah, what in fact had transpired after he met Rebekah, and he was showing that there was a direct match. There was, this is what I had asked of the Lord, and this is what Rebecca did. But the emphasis on everything is not about Eliezer. The emphasis is on Abraham, his request, and God who's leading him in the way. Um, have you ever heard the expression said many times by believers, they'll talk about a plan of doing something. And they'll use this phrase, well, Lord willing, I will go and I will do this thing. And, so, and, and in fact, James emphasizes this. You know, we have no control of what happens out there. We are subject to the Lord at all times. And so it's appropriate for us to say, if the Lord is willing. The original meaning of that comes from this story. That the true way to walk uprightly before the Lord, to walk with the Lord in your life, is to look for those clues, those indicators that you're on the path that God wants you to be on. Man makes plans, but God is the one who controls your steps. And by the way, a successful spiritual person looks to the Lord to what shall happen next in my life. What, 
what is it that you desire me to do, Lord? And you ask the Lord. And then you say, well, I think this is the thing I should do. If you're willing, Lord, if you'll guide me and show me the way, that the belief is a spiritual person sees his success coming from walking with the Lord. Uh, a man who doesn't know the Lord thinks his success because he's brilliant or smart or because he does what he wants to do. That's foolishness. That is not spirituality. A spiritual man recognizes that God is involved in his life in right down to the details of every step he takes. And he looks to God's agreement and indicator for it. Um, I think the whole spiritual life that we live is a little bit like when you're on a long journey. And along the way, let's say that you, you're going to this particular place that you're planning on traveling to, it's assuring and reassuring to you that you're on the right path if all of a sudden along the road you see some signs that says, for example, it's advertising a business in that location. You'll see those along the highway as you go. Or you'll see one of the state signs that says names, gives the name of the town and how many miles to it. Or you have the mile marker post to it. And you begin to see the evidence that you're making progress toward that. And that's essentially what Eliezer's recounting to us in great detail. A shining example of how you walk before the Lord and follow God's leading where you lay out, if this is the steps in front of me, I'll see this. If this is your way, then you'll open the door of opportunity there. And a lot of times, many spiritual brethren will make key decisions in their life because they see you know, things open before them, and this door opens, and that door opens, and this door opens, and they, they have a sense of that they're traveling along with the Lord and that He's giving His blessing along the way, and they're looking for where God is giving an indication of that He knows the path He's on and He's going to make His way successful. And that is one of the hallmarks of a spiritual man and how he's led by the Spirit of God. Eliezer is giving us this incredible example about how he came trusting the Lord, believing the Lord was with him on the journey, that the angel of the Lord was before him. We who are believers of the Messiah, we more specifically speak to the Messiah guiding us and helping us to, through a situation. Uh, and that we're not quite sure which way to go or what decision to make. We look to the Lord to help give us clues and answers to those things. Either he opens the door for us or he clearly closes that door and we go the other way. And so that's essentially what Eliezer is doing with him. Look, I've already gone this far, but the last thing is if she's willing to go. And that's probably part of the family decision. Will the family, will their father allow her to go? Those who have leadership, would they permit her to go? So he lays it out and he says, let's cut to the chase. Let's not worry about your casserole you made for me. Let's cut to the chase. Are you willing to follow what appears to be the signs of God on this matter? Are you willing to follow uh, the Lord and help answer and be a part of this, what the Lord is doing here? Now, had they said, no, we, we want to check it out, blah, 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 um, then he would have known, no, this isn't the one. I need to go back out there to that well and meet somebody else. Or I can head home now, and it's not going to work out. But so this is where the crux of it comes to. So let's listen to how Laban responds to this and how Rebecca's family responds to this whole thing. Verse 50, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord. We recognize that the Lord is doing something here. And since we follow the Lord, we're, we're going to be a part of that process. So we cannot speak to you bad or good. It's not our decision. The Lord is obviously doing this thing, is what they're saying. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son. And the Lord has spoken. And it came about when Abraham's servant heard this, these words that he bowed low to the ground before the Lord, and the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. 
And then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. And when they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. But his brother and his mother said, Let the girl stay with us for a few days. and Say ten. Afterward, she may go. You notice the number ten again? How about she stand ten, ten more days? Well, is that confidence in God? Or is that not having confidence in God? So in this particular case, Eliezer responds, and he says, said to him, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered him away. Send me away, and I may go to my master. I have my answer from the master. I know what his will is. Do not delay me from this matter. Let me go and complete what the Lord has led me to do. So he's kind of insistent. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Now, they've already given the okay, so they're trying to deflect what Eliezer's saying. So they ask, well, let's let Rebecca decide. And uh, so they call for Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Now, that, that ends it right there. She's definitely going to load up and she's going to go. Um, whirlwind romance, if you will. And they make their way back. Well, you can know it's a whirlwind romance if you know it's God's perfect will for it to take place. Then she said, um, verse 59, Thus they sent her away, sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. And that's a blessing they put on her as she went to establish her life with Isaac. Then Rebekah rose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servants took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from the spring of Bir Lahai Roy, for he had been living in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. What field had he gone to? The field that was associated with the burial place of his mother. He had gone there, probably to pray and probably to share his heart with the Lord. And he was still in grief, still mourning the loss of his mother uh, for it. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. You know, again, Abraham looked up to see the Lord. He looks up. He sees what the Lord is bringing to him. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the, uh, from the camel. So she said to the servant, Who is that man walking the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into her mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, she became his wife, and he loved her, and thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is a very interesting scripture. Now, normally in our culture, and in the culture that we pretty much know, let's say that a, a young man is going to seek a bride. Well, what he does is he meets her, sees her, and eye contact is usually the first mechanism of them coming together. And they speak with each other. They usually will greet with a handshake or something of that type. Either he'll gesture for a door. In other words, we all go through these same basic steps. And what usually happens is you have to then profess to this young lady that I, I love you. And as after expressing that, then you ask her for a proposal of marriage. She agrees to the marriage. And then you have this big wedding party. And then you go in and you consummate the marriage. And everything is, lives happily ever after. Not, not the way the world really works. That's what we do in our culture. But let me tell you the reality of how men really get married. First of all, they're looking for a gal that is as good as mom. Uh, they, they like to have mom with the milk and cookies and other benefits. 
and in particular, they are physically attracted to the woman. And in our society, uh, they've learned that, by the way, you have this physical attraction for her, but the only way that you're going to have appropriate um, behavior and intimacy with her is if you marry her. So the first thing he wants to do is he wants to take her. Then he decides, okay, I'll marry her. And then after about six months of marriage, he wakes up one morning and he goes, oh my goodness, I, I married her. And he now accepts the responsibility for getting married. Quite honestly, he got married so that he could have legal sex with her. And then after, oh, a few more years, he wakes up one morning and he goes, oh my goodness, I think I really love her. What we have described to us in the scripture is Isaac took her, married her, and then loved her, and it was all tied to he was comforted for the loss of his mother. And the, while our society will do the reverse of that, uh, the reality for men is this is the way men get married. And that may come as a shock to some of you ladies, but Honestly, physical attraction is the first thing. Marriage is the legal requirement we have to do. Then, then they really fall in love after they really get to know you um, after a while. And thus, they see you as an acceptable substitute replacement for mom uh, for it. This is the thinking of man. This is the way men are wired. And we have this incredible passage here that's describing exactly how Eliezer married Rebekah. By the way, it's the path to a very successful marriage. And because the two qualities in the middle ends up with, are you ready for this? A loving marriage. Those are the two qualities that remain uh, in there forever with it. All right, so our, the rest of our portion is going to take us into uh, the death of, of um, Abraham is going to speak of him. And then in the next week's portion, which is Toledo, it'll be called the Generations of Isaac, and we're going to be introduced to the children of Rebekah, uh, who will have twins, Esau and Jacob, and the story that then shifts to them and Jacob throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. So that's our portion for this week. Shabbat Shalom. I trust you'll have a wonderful Sabbath.